You want to find and keep your tribe of raving fans. I want to support that journey. This is the Digging Deep Podcast with your host, Justin Lamb of 360 Media. I explore ways to help you build a more attractive business that finds and keeps your tribe of raving fans. Hey everybody, this is Justin Lamb and you're listening to episode 34 of Digging Deep where we help business owners build better businesses Today I'm being joined by another friend in our little group uh, of kids that are going to the same school, uh, Ryan Wong, a senior partner at BCS Real Estate. Ryan, how's things? Good, good. How about yourself? Good, thanks. Uh, so I have a couple of questions. So first of all, you're, you're a real estate appraiser yes. by nature. And so how did you get into it? So I took UBC Commerce uh, specializing in real estate. So there's 10 options you can specialize in. I chose real estate. But honestly, we touched on appraisal very lightly during my undergrad, like one semester actually. So when we graduated, uh, which was in 1998, a while ago now, um, the, the real estate market was doing really poorly and not too many firms were hiring. And we, there were about 30 people in our option. We sort of took it upon ourselves to publish a book of resumes that we would circ- like circulate throughout the city to big real estate firms that we had hoped to work for regardless of whether or not they had a formal job posting or not. So um, I remember distinctly coming back from, from Las Vegas with my friends and uh, having a message on my answering machine because I didn't have a cell phone back then. It was an answering machine. And it was uh, Burgess, Austin, and Associates at the time um, calling me, arranging for an interview. And I, don't remember, I didn't remember ever applying for a job there, but um, uh, I figured out it must have come from that book of resumes that we circulated. Um, and I went in for an interview and it was with the founding partner and like a, a British guy, an older British guy who was very easy to talk to. And I thought this was, this was easy. This was no problem at all. And then the second round of interviews came. And then it was the other founding partner, another older British guy and um, the, another senior partner. And that one went horribly. And um, I remember at one point, um, the British part, the, the, one of the founding partners had to step up for another meeting and I was left with the other partner. I thought, okay, maybe if it's not the two of them ganging up on me here, it'll be a little bit smoother, but it, it was even worse. And I remember distinctly remember thinking I'm wasting everyone's time and maybe I should just get up and leave in the middle of the interview because it was going so poorly. But um, here I am today, I got the job and um, 22 years later, uh, yeah, senior partner of the same firm. Amazing. So tell me a little bit about sort of what it entailed. So you joined the firm and you know, do you go when you went out in the field? Like you'd probably very little experience. Like how do you? I just feel like in terms of real estate appraisal, it's not something that I think a lot of people know a lot about. And no. and it's no. and I, I'm now I think of it as guy gets on your roof, kind of checks your taps and and that sort <laughs> of stuff. But I mean, you're doing something completely different. Like you're yeah. you're you're at a totally different level, totally different scale. Yeah. Yeah. So um, single family home appraisers are different than sort of the work that we do. We don't do any single family or single, single unit appraisals. We do entire multifamily developments, office buildings, commercial properties, industrial properties, um, rental apartment buildings, uh, that sort of stuff. So it's a little bit different. It's a different um, accreditation that you have as well um, that sort of separates us from the single family uh, home appraiser. So we're not getting up on your roof and you know, checking out the value of your fence and things like that. It's, uh, it's a little bit more uh, complex. So when, when you talk about complex, so at the end of the day, when a person um, or a company a developer comes um, to ask for those particular services, uh, what are they using it for and how do they leverage what it is that you're providing them? 
Sure, so typically it's to obtain some sort of financing. So if it's a de developer that's looking for it, um, it's usually they have a project that they've envisioned, uh, they've taken it through the rezoning process, and they want to get financing from the bank to, um, to build the project out. So that's where we come in. So we, we assess the feasibility of that project, give the developer the report, and they submit it to the bank. And the, the bank relies on that report uh, in terms of how much financing they want to lend, lend on, or if they want to give financing at all on the project, if they think it's worth their while. So then what type of variables are you looking at? Well, I mean, it's very high level. It's, it's the revenue, the expected revenue of the project. So what can the completed project sell for in the open market? Mm. And then all of the development costs that are related to it. So mm. everything from the bricks and mortar to all the consultants fees, to the interest rates. So we basically do a discounted cash flow to work back to um, a land value that is uh, financially feasible for the developers to make some money. Amazing. And so as you're, as you're presenting all of these um, you know, variables and, and putting them all together in a proposal that these people take to the bank. Um, what could a developer or, you know, somebody who's looking to get into developing real estate, what type of things could they be, you know, looking at in terms of, you know, things to consider before getting to you or do, you know, in terms of things that they need to prepare, um, you know, things that they need to watch out for, um, you know, before they come in and engage in your services? No, that's a good question. So typically we're engaged, as a consultant, we're sort of engaged farther down the line. I would say that the other consultants that are typically contacted before it gets to the appraisal stage is probably an architect, um, an engineer, an environmental consultant to see the soil stability, that sort of thing, lawyers, uh, and probably their lender to see what kind of financing can be arranged or what kind of terms are available, like generally, uh, before it gets to us. Um, that's if you're going down the construction financing route. If you're going down the land financing route, you're just trying to get money to close on a development site, um, there's probably fewer consultants involved. Um, if the architect and engineers are retained, at that point it's mostly on a higher level basis and not to the micro level you'd see on a construction financing appraisal where you're looking at it very detailed architectural drawings, uh, finding out unit sizes and all sorts of things. That's really interesting. So what additional training did you have to get outside of school in order to get into that? So um, my designation is AACI, uh, which is a Canadian Appraisal Institute uh, designation. So it's, it's good across Canada. Um, there's coursework that you do um, sort of by correspondence or outside of work hours, um, like a lot of other professional organizations. Um, so you have a lot of overlap with the commerce degree and uh, especially, especially the um, real estate option that covers off a lot of the coursework that the Appraisal Institute um, offers on the side. Um, so I think it's roughly six courses that you have to take to top off, if you will, on your, your BCom in uh, real estate. Hmm. Okay, and is, are, is that designation just local to BC or nationwide? It's nationwide. But having said that, certain provinces require an additional license to operate in their own province. But with that said, um, all the work I do is strictly BC. It's, it's hard to know a geographical market um, larger than, than BC uh, for what I do. Um, knowing condo values in Manitoba and Quebec, it's probably a little bit more difficult. Mm. Okay. And so where do you find a lot of like problems uh, that exist maybe within you know your your work like what type of hurdles do people generally run into or that you kind of run up into a brick wall and go well you kind of need these things and they're not in a line where people have a misconception about what it is that you 
um, that that you're providing? You know, is there a disconnect? Because I would uh, imagine that there must be. Yeah, I mean, typically, like, the developer's expectation on the value of their property is always going to be more than what a lot of people think, right? Just like people think their house is worth a certain number, and the reality is, you know, something different. Uh, it's no different when you're talking about commercial development as well. So, it's for me the challenge is managing that um, that that client expectation, managing their expectations. Um, but uh, you know, looking at the market and being able to support the conclusions that I make, that's the most important thing because if I submit a report that's heavily biased for a developer and, and the bank kind of gets that impression, then that's a very um, quick way of um, not getting the approval of the financial institutions. That's what you need, right? If a, mm -hmm. if a bank is not willing to rely on the report from BCS, then we don't have any clients, right? Your credibility and your integrity is, is the foundation of um, that repeat business. Hmm. Fair enough. And so in terms of becoming a senior partner, tell me a little bit about that journey. So, I mean, you, you got in the door, what did it take to get you there? Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's, um, so there's equity in the firm. So you made an investment in the firm, but it's not something that you can really, or historically hasn't been something that really asked for. I had been there for six years. Um, so I was about 26, well, I was 26 when the, uh, the senior partner, the two senior partners asked me to go out for lunch and, it, you know, to keep in mind that this is a sort of a work environment where you don't get a lot of positive reinforcement. It's usually, you know, you got the work done and that's great. If you didn't do something properly, then you'd probably hear about it, right? So when you're called for lunch with the two senior partners, you're kind of on edge. I, I honestly thought, you know, is, you know, is a client unhappy with my work and they went, you know, they gone behind me and complained to a partner. And I was kind of worried about that, but, you know, from, from the moment I sat down, we could tell it wasn't that kind of lunch. And, you know, they asked me if I wanted to join on with the partnership. And uh, and I did. So that's, that was in 2005. So I've been a partner with the firm since. Cool. And what have you learned in your journey as being a partner and, you know, having a stake in the company? I mean, obviously, you weren't there in the founding stages. And, right. and of course, they those have their own challenges. But, you know, what about a person who is maybe in this world and they're looking to maybe join a firm of some sort and they're offered that opportunity? Like, what type of things were going through your mind when you started um, or when you were presented with that opportunity? And then, of course, you know, what things have you learned as being a partner, an equity partner? In a yeah, firm? I mean, to be honest, it, when I had started working there, it wasn't really something that I thought about uh, a great deal. I just thought mostly on a day-to-day -day basis, doing a good job, working hard, meeting my deadlines. And ultimately having clients that come back and do repeat business, right? I didn't really think longer term about being a partner because it wasn't something that was kind of put out there by management at the time. It wasn't like, oh, if you work hard, then someday you'll be considered for that. It's In that sense, it's different from, like, say, accounting firms or law firms where they've got a pretty clear track to partnership. It's not like that where, you know, a, a group of 40 people, but it's still not, you know, the level of, um, you know, say, a large accounting firm, right? So. That path of partnership is definitely not um, very clear. Um, what I've learned about being a partner since then, it's it's less about me doing the actual work because I don't do a lot of my own, let's say, appraisal writing day to day. Most of my work is client management, um, mentoring and training younger staff. And a lot of the day is spent um, talking to clients um, as a sounding board. So no matter how successful you are as a developer, a second opinion never hurts. And a lot of times it's spent with someone that's thinking about buying a property and they want to get an opinion on it. Because with anyone, you can get caught up in your own biases and, and drink your own Kool-Aid to a certain extent, and it never hurts to have that second opinion. 
So I'd say half my day is actually spent doing work on specific properties, and the other half is talking to people in the market. Mm -hmm. Observations and due diligence kind of calls. Amazing. And so with that, it obviously has to have some sort of leadership skills that they get involved with that if you're working with a group of 40. And, yeah. and so were you naturally born type of leader? Did you have to learn it? You know, what type of, what, um, what type of, yeah, I mean, I, I think it kind of, you kind of learn, um, as you go along, but I think it depends on the people that you're working with. Like certain, certain associates that I work with, um, they like to talk about, you know, their file every step of the way. And some like to go away and, and think about it and not ask you a bunch of questions along the way and just come up with the result. And I don't mind either, but you kind of have to know what works best for each individual because everyone is sort of different. Um, you know, COVID is a little bit different in that the face-to-face -face interaction obviously isn't quite the same. I mean, I do a lot of Zoom calls with my staff all the time, uh, but some people don't want to do that or some people feel, you know, more comfortable just messaging me like WhatsApp. Um, so I'm all about supporting you know, the associates the best way uh, I can to help them succeed. Hmm. So then let's, let's move a little bit off uh, in a different direction. So, you know, BC has grown a lot. Um, you know, luxury prices for, for residential homes are going back up. Where do you see the commercial development markets going um, in terms of the type of developers coming in? Are there more? Um, is the property, you know, being, uh, what type of properties are being built um, you know, has the industry shifted over this last, you know, six to eight months in terms of what you're seeing? You know, tell me a little bit about what, what's going on in the market now. So, I mean, the, one of the strongest markets, even amid COVID, has been the industrial market. So I'm talking like warehouses for distribution, uh, typical goods storage, that sort of thing, because well, you can see how much Amazon does in business, companies like that, distribution hubs and warehouses are really important. So industrial is doing very well, um, arguably better than it was doing uh, doing uh, pre-COVID really, but some assets are suffering a little bit more. Obviously, any any property that's got a lot of restaurant tenants or retail tenants is having a more difficult time because you're not getting the same traffic, right? And online sales, while they're up uh, across the board, um, they make up a you know relatively small proportion of a retailer's total sales. They still rely on their bricks and mortar, so so retail's in a bit of a tough spot right now. But a lot of multifamily residential is doing very well still single family is still doing very well mm. but so so do you think that retail will make its own comeback like i think a lot of people now are shopping online more than ever before and you know part of me feels like that that's going to really impact you know brick and mortar stores uh but the other part of me says that there's resilience in especially the small business market where you know some may die and some will come back to life in, in a different iteration how do you see Yeah, it? I think that the face of retail is going to change um, quite dramatically. How it will change, I mean, it kind of remains to be seen. But I think I think the, what COVID did was sort of flush out a lot of the retailers that were marginal to begin with. Um, but I think they will have to revamp the way they do things. Um, online sales are, like I said, are only a small proportion. I think the retail uh, bricks and mortar will have to change to more of an experience-based sort of promotion. That's what you're going to have to be relying on to sell rather than just the goods themselves. What am I offering um, in the physical experience that's going to separate me from just the bricks and mortar or the online presence, right? That's uh, true, I guess. Uh, I think as I've kind of been watching, because I mean, I, I own index stocks uh, or index funds related to different commercial 
pieces um, of the of the market and sectors, and it's really interesting to see you know how big a hit retail has actually taken. Um, you know, and but if I take a look at the micro and I look at you know uh, Instagram news feeds and stuff like that, there are a lot of little small businesses still like popping up their stores and still giving a go at it. Um, you know, and and my my wonder is you know how does that how is that going to change in, in terms of people are getting in now because it's cheap and people are suffering they just want the rent and so people are kind of getting into it. But what happens when everything changes and and we go back to a normal life and do you, do you feel like landlords are going to go back to to taking in heavy you know revenue and and rent from from these individuals and how does that change that market? I, I think I think the landlords are closely looking at the relationships with each tenant that comes to them asking for some sort of rent relief. Um, some might say, well, they were we could a lot of re, uh, landlords actually see sales uh, history or sales performance of some of their tenants. It's kind of built into their leases, so they can see how they were doing pre and post COVID or you know this period during COVID. So. A lot of them would say, well, the, the tenants that are having problems now, we could kind of see that on, like, you know, it was on the horizon, you know, well before March 2020, right? So um, while I think they are working with some, um, you know, giving them some sort of rent abatement or some sort of rent relief, others are saying, well, this is probably a good time for just to just to walk away and sever the relationship. Um, I do a lot of um, rental arbitration work, acting as an expert witness um, in landlord-tenant disputes. And having spoken to a number of um, prominent um, lawyers that specialize in that kind of work, are saying this has opened up a whole new area of litigation uh, that we probably are just getting the tip of the iceberg on. Mm-hmm. You can imagine with all you know, all the tenants probably in default or in arrears on their leases, um, there's got to be some legal issues that come up. Yeah, I can I can imagine that that happens fairly fairly regularly. I think at this point where. You know, I've seen in my own personal circle of business yeah. owners, like they're just, they're, a lot of them are folding and a lot of them just can't, can't even keep up and they're, they're yeah. just struggling. Um, and, and I, I think my heart bleeds for those people because Absolutely. You know, they're really trying to make things work. But, you know, I think you're, you're right. It is indicative of, of things going sideways prior to COVID. I mean, you know, what, six months and, you know, realistically, a lot of those businesses only had a three month shutdown. Yeah. And they, they really, like, they're they're down to, to next to nothing. And it doesn't take much more than another wave, which can potentially come back. So. Yeah, a lot of people think there would be another wave. Hmm. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what type of uh, book, a website, um, something that you have come across that really has inspired your journey, um, either getting to where you are today or prior to or even you know, where you are currently. Yeah, I mean, this book wasn't available when I was, um, I guess, in that partnership, but I've, I've read it since I became a partner, and it's put a lot of things sort of in context, and it, I guess it provided me a greater understanding of how things got to be, really, and I think the one that, that kind of sticks out in that regard is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, so uh, 10,000 hours, um, that sort of thing. Um, the big thing I took away from that, besides the 10,000 hours, was um, you have to have the opportunity. I mean, Gladwell talks about um, hard work but opportunity, right? Um, and some people call, would say that luck is the intersection of, you know, that hard is work. exactly yeah. what I believe. I totally believe that you know, luck is the cross section of preparation and hard and work. Hard work. That's right. Yeah. So for me, I had put in the time. I had I had billed two thousand hours a year in my first five or six years as an associate, which is averaging 
about nine hours a day, six days a week. And I had just buried myself, the preparation part, right? And the opportunity came when the founding partner was going to be moving on. So when he was moving on and I was just starting to develop, um, getting past that, that magical 10,000 hours, um, those two kind of collided, right? Where the preparation met the, uh, the opportunity. So um, I had not you know, given that much thought, certainly at the time, because Gladwell's theory was, his book wasn't even out in 2005, but since that book came out, it's like, oh, I can understand um, things happen for a reason and they aren't just luck, as it were. Yeah, awesome. No, it's great that you believe in the same thing. And, yeah. and I believed in the same thing long before I, I read the book I, as well. So I thought that was really, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, it's something that I, I hold near and dear to my heart. So, but thank you so much for joining me today. I hope. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. Thank, and, and, you know, I think later on, I think we'll have another podcast where I get to explore the other side of it. And it's, uh, you know, the relationships uh, that, that kind of form around your, your business. So I think that'll be interesting that, uh, that we could uh, explore that next time. Yeah. Anytime. So for those people who want to get a hold of you, how are they going to be able to contact you? Um, you can send me an email, uh, ryanw at bcsre.ca. Um, and I'll be sure to get back to you as quick as I can. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you. So for those people listening, thank you so much for tuning in today. I really do appreciate your time and your, um, uh, your dedication to the channel. So if you've made it all the way to the end, Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Uh, please leave a like, a comment, and um, a review on uh, Apple's iTunes, and that would be really great. Helps me with the search engine rankings. Um, and until next time, have a great day. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Your time is valuable, and I'm deeply humbled that you're spending that time with me. I want to make this channel something really great, something you can really enjoy and get a lot of value out of. So if you have any suggestions or comments, please connect with me and let me know. If you enjoyed this content, I'd love it if you'd share it with somebody else and if you'd leave a comment on iTunes for me. This helps me rank higher on the search engines. And as always, tune in next week as we dig deeper into marketing and business. Until next time, have a great day.